Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, Tiare Tahiti by Rupert Brooke. This probably or may have been first published in Collected Poems of Rupert Brooke uh, in 1918. Um, I did try to find an earlier publication and did not have any luck with that. Um, We do know when it was composed. It's on the last uh, page, which is uh, in February 1914. And... it's really good that somebody has helped me out to understand this poem by doing a little research because even though I really liked it, I I was struggling to try and understand what's going on. But I also I also completely understood what was going on, even though I didn't like know who anybody was or what was happening because um, it speaks uh, to things I do think about a lot and uh, that's what I recognized in it. But, um, uh, like, even uh, just the first line, Mamua, when our laughter ends. I don't know who Mamua was when I first read it. I don't... I'm not sure that this is designed to be published um, at all. I think it might be just something he wrote because he was a poet. This guy, Rupert Brooke, I hadn't heard of him before I I found this poem. But uh, W.B. Yeats, who was a friend of his, um, called him the handsomest young man in England. And if you go to his <laughs> Wikipedia entry and you look at a photo of him, he, he's very handsome. Um, there's a statue of him uh, in... Um, rugby and that is a very handsome and uh he seems to be well regarded for a very short-lived young man he died in 1915 so the year after this poem uh was written um and this was writ this poem was written in tahiti um which is in the title so uh, i had to do quite a bit of legwork to try and figure out like who people being mentioned are, or if if they're people at all. But uh, mm. when I submitted it to you, I think you you thought it was impressive enough uh, <laughs> to do, even though I think we're both short on um, spe- specifics. What do you think? I do think that it's a good poem. I think it's one worth reading. Uh, I think it's it's. Um, I think it energizes us in certain ways, and I think that it actually has some some powerful implications. Oh yeah, uh, which I don't think I, I I don't think we need to know who these people are. Um, I, I don't like to say too much before we've had a chance to to think and hear about it, but I I, I would say no, I'll wait. Okay. There are there are a lot of names here. Yes, and there are things that seem to be names, um, but none of them seem to be names that we've ever encountered before. So, you know, it's it's in Tahiti, and in fact, the title Tiara Tahiti, um, Tiara. That's T I A R E. It's not Tiara. Mm-hmm. It's not the. It's not headgear. It's a. It's a Polynesian variety of gardenia. Mm-hmm. You know, a big white, flamboyant, conspicuous, fragrant flower. Mm-hmm. 
So that's what it is. It's 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 Gardenia Tahiti, but it's in it's in Tahitian terminology, Tiara right. Tahiti. Shall we go through it? Yeah. Uh, will you read it for it? us, and then um, we'll try and understand what it means and wh- why it's so moving. Okay. Tiara Tahiti. Mamawa, when our laughter ends and hearts and bodies brown as white are dust about the doors of friends or sent a-blowing down the night, then, oh, then, the wise agree comes our immortality. Mamawa, there waits a land hard for us to understand out of time beyond the sun. All are one in paradise. You and Pupare are one, and Tao, and the ungainly wise. There the Eternals are, and there the good, the lovely, and the true, and types whose earthly copies were the foolish broken things we knew. There is the face whose ghosts we are, the real, the never-setting star, and the flower of which we love faint and fading shadows here, never a tear, but only grief. Dance, but not the limbs that move. Songs in song shall disappear. Instead of lovers, love shall be for hearts immutability. And there on the ideal reef thunders the everlasting sea and my laughter and my pain shall home to the eternal brain and all lovely things they say meet in loveliness again miri's laugh tiepo's feet and the hands of matua stars and sunlight there shall meet carl's hues and rainbows there and teora's braided hair and with the star tiara's white and white birds in the dark ravine and flamboyance ablaze at night and jewels and evenings after green and dawns of pearls and gold and red mamawa your lovelier head and there'll be no more one who dreams under the ferns of rumbling, under the ferns of crumbling stuff, eyes of illusion, mouth that seems, all time entangled human love. And you'll no longer swing and sway divinely down the scented shade where feet to ambulation fade and moons are lost in endless day How shall we wind these wreaths of ours where there are neither heads nor flowers? Oh, heavens, heaven. But we'll be missing the palms and sunlight and the south. And there's an end, I think, of kissing when our mouths are one with mouth. Tau here, Mamua, 
crown the hair and come away, hear the calling of the moon and the whispering scents that stray about the idle warm lagoon, hasten hand in human hand down the dark, the flowered way along the whiteness of the sand and in the water's soft caress, wash the mind of foolishness, Mamua, until the day Spend the glittering moonlight there, pursuing down the soundless deep, limbs that gleam and shadowy hair, or floating lazy, half asleep, dive and double and follow after, snare in flowers and kiss and call with lips that fade and human laughter and faces individual. Well, this side of paradise, there's little comfort in the wise it's it's very enigmatic um by itself um i guess that's uh, in part because you know i'm not a native of tahiti so some of these words are tahitian i looked up a number of them um but uh i did i tell you how i came across this poem you did not okay well um I've been rewatching Star Trek. <laughs> and uh, the second to last line, um, well, this side of paradise is uh, part of the title of one of the episodes of Star Trek, this side of paradise. And it was, to me, what, what I've noticed in watching it as an adult Star Trek is that the uh, writers were generally very literate. <laughs> they had read a lot mm-hmm. of books and obviously a lot of poems. And I was familiar with some of them. Um, you know, Shakespeare's in a lot of uh, Star Trek, and there's a whole episode that has a to catch the conscience of a king scene uh, mm-hmm. with actors and all that. But this one, I, I just didn't recognize the title, and it... it it does. It's not called out in the episode, um, but I will just briefly recount what happens in that episode. That episode of Star Trek has the crew of the Enterprise going to a planet where they expect uh, everyone to be dead. They expect everyone to be dead because of a radiation that's there that will kill them all. However. Um, they find everybody alive and they've all become vegetarians and they all have perfect health. It is a heavenly planet in a certain sense. Um, why is this? Well, um, turns out that uh, there's a flower on the, I was going to say island, but on the planet, <laughs> that if you uh, get near it, it shoots its spores into you and gives you uh, a sense of contentment and love for all that is around you and will keep you healthy forever. There's no need to breed, um, although loving is still allowed. And people who are unable to uh, love because of their roles in society or their um, uh, religion are now able to do so. This happens because, I, I mentioned this because Spock meets an old flame um, but it wasn't much of a, uh, a romance because he's Vulcan and he's not into love. But as soon as he gets hit by this flower spores, he becomes a person content with existing um, in this paradise. This very much reminds me of the stories that we get uh, of sailors going into the South Pacific. 
So there's a novel called Typee by Herman Melville, which recounts his experience of um, uh, defecting or mutant, I guess just fleeing a ship that he was working on and running into the hills to escape uh, the tedious sea life and the society uh, that spawned it. And there he is worried about cannibals, but what he discovers instead is people who barely have to work to get food just reach up and and women who are uh, delighted to shower affection on him and it's paradise and this story happens a lot in hawaii uh, sailors would run off and hang out with the natives and not want to come back and get back on board their ship and this was such a problem that they would send crews uh to go after runaway sailors so there's a kind of confrontation between our society of you know late capitalism and this uh you know rich society where you don't own anything except for your time and your uh, uh time spent with others that's all you have because everything is provided for and um this is very interesting because I've never been to Tahiti, but when I've been when I went to Hawaii, I was shocked because you could basically live outside. You know, if there's a rainstorm, that's terrible, but you just get wet. The rain is warm, and it's never <laughs> winter. You will never freeze. I mean, if you climb to the top of the highest mountain there, you would, but don't do that. Just go down to the water. It's a kind of paradise earthly paradise so i'm seeing that in this poem but he's talking uh, rupert brook is i think talking about another kind of paradise as well and that's the paradise after death when we have no bodies and all the things that will be there it's uh super beautiful is what i would say uh i can see why you uh having come upon the line, wanted to pursue it further and found this poem. I think the more famous reference for most people, um, certainly for English majors and mm. you included, um, This Side of Paradise is the name of a 1920 book, the first novel by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's clear, I think, that he is taking that title from uh, Rupert Brooks' poem, absolutely, um, and so, uh, but but these days people might be watching Star Trek. I think, however, um, the Star Trek is episode is making a reference not directly to Brook, but to to Fitzgerald in Fitzgerald's novel, uh, a fellow who thinks that he has a great future in front front of him um, goes east. And uh, turns out to to have been wrong. Um, you know, we are there. It's not easy to find paradise. Mm -hmm. uh, I I think that that's that conforms as does the Star Trek episode you described. That there's something. The Star Trek episode, as you describe it, suggests that paradise is a snare. That real paradise depends upon not seeing things as they really are. Mm. I, I think that. This poem does not. I think this poem is a critique of Platonism. 
Uh, in Plato's world, and uh, since you and I are reading the poem, we can see all the capital letters, you know, love, you know, there are, instead of lovers, love shall be. And I tried in my reading to indicate where those capital mm-hmm. letters were. You know, there the eternals are, and the good, the lovely, and the true, and types whose earthly copies were the foolish, broken things we knew. Right. So, all of the things that exist in this world are, are, are in the true platonic sense, um, corrupt exemplars that do not live up to the totality of the ideal types of which they are exemplars. And what Brooke is, has his speaker saying here is that, that if love disappears, if, if lovers disappear into love, and if dancing disappears into dance, then there is no mo- movement. If, if immortality yields immutability, then we have none of the things that make for the beauties of real life. Right. If your immortality means immutability, where is the savoring of food if hunger is gone forever? And where are the piquancies of hunger if we can never enjoy the contrast with food? What we have here is a critique of the notion that we would ever I, want to live in that ideal world. What, what the poem is doing is suggesting that Plato may have been giving us an idea of what the ideal world is, but that doesn't mean that that's the place we want to inhabit. It just gives us a sense of where we fit in the universe. Where we want to inhabit is here, and the wise who point this out to us are not that wise at all. But this is not only, I think, Jesse, a, a, a beautiful, implicit critique of Platonism, this also falls within a long tradition of poetry. It is, in a way, a carpe diem poem. It it reminds me of To His Coy Mistress. Yeah. Oh, you know, had we but world enough and time, this coyness lady would be no crime. I would do this, I would do that. And so, so in the carpe diem poem tradition, typically the poet is saying, or the speaking voice of the poem is saying, look, we're going to die So let's seize the day and make love now. The thing is, in that English tradition, what needs to be made clear is that hesitance is to be rejected because eventually we will be immobile. We will be immutable. We will be dead. What Brooke is doing is, as with Melville on the island of Taipei, um, where he just has to reach up and the breadfruit is there for satisfying every possible nutritional need. Um, what he has here, Brooke, is one cooperative person after another. I don't know what these words mean, but I'm assuming that Mamawa and Popore and, and so on, these might just as well be people. They are natives. We are mm-hmm. in this island paradise, as you described Hawaii. We are in this island paradise. 
And it's paradise because we are doing all these things, because we are moving. We don't know if they're male or female. We don't know if they're young or old. But what we know is they are sensuous and they are together. So here in the Carpe Diem tradition, we have no need to ask, ask them to stop you know, being hesitant and to comply. They are complying. They're, they are taking advantage of the world now. And what he is saying is, that is the, poet, the poetic voice, we don't want to go to this other place, not because we will be dead, even if we acknowledge that we will be in the ideal place in what the poem calls heaven's heaven. It won't give us what we really want, which is love. Yep. That we can have here. And so that last line, um, well, this side of paradise, that's what we want. There's little comfort in the wise. I, I, I think it's, your analysis is spot on here. Um, <laughs> I didn't make the connection to his coy mistress uh, as a similar uh, doing what this poem is doing, but it is a connection that's absolutely there. Um, we actually do have uh, a little bit of information. This is from um, uh, a biography of Rupert Brooke. And uh, so Mamua is the native woman who nursed Brooke in Tahiti, with whom he had a love affair during his three-month stay, beginning in late January 1914. This is composed in February 1914. And whom he named uh, Tata Mata. He met her at the Tiara Hotel, the Tiara Hotel, so that's the flower of the title, and missed her after he left. In early 1915, he received her letter of May 14th, in which she wrote, Sweetheart, you know I always thinking about you. That time when you left me, I'd be sorry for a long time. We have good time when you were here. I always remember you uh, remember about you forget me already. Oh, and then she uh, says some sweet nothings in French. Um, I send you my kiss to you, darling. Mille kiss. As Brooke was dying, he asked that she be told of his death, saying, Give her my love. Oh, that's wonderful. I didn't know that. Amazing. Amazing. It, it it is a it's um the wise of the beginning and the wise of the end are those who philosophize about what comes after. But it's contrasted with the heaven on earth that they know. The heaven with people, not with whatever comes after. I, I would note that. Uh that that crucial point that that you're making is also made in a subtle subliminal way by the mastery that Brooke shows of the prosody involved here. Mm-hmm. The word, I mean, if, if you look at, at the beginning, you, um, we get perfect rhyme. Mamua, when our laughter ends, and hearts and bodies brown as white, are dust about the doors of friends or scent a blowing down the night, right? 
then, oh, then the wise agree comes our immortality. But as we go on, the word wise appears, interestingly enough, as if it's supposed to rhyme with, well, I'll read it, out of time, that's the platonic world we mm. know on our rereading, mm-hmm. out of time, beyond the sun, all are one in paradise. You and Pupare are one, and Tau and the ungainly wise. Wise is ungainly, yeah. uncomfortable, and so on. As a rhyme with paradise, we've had nothing but perfect rhyme up until that point. And the thing that that is supposed to rhyme with paradise is ungainly wise. It's ungainly because it doesn't rhyme. And, and as you read through the whole of the poem, I won't do that now, um, that is the one off rhyme that we get, just slightly off but far enough to realize, by golly, wise and paradise don't quite go together. Mm. Uh, I think Brooke is really very smart here in his language. He's clearly uh, somebody we need to look at more because I'd never heard of him. And um, I think that that whole Star Trek episode is completely inspired by this idea of of uh, when I was describing it, you you said it sounded like it was um, a repudiation uh, or a not a repudiation. You used a special vocab word that I do not recall, <laughs> but basically um, that it was a bad thing. Um, I, I compared the episode in some writings to uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is a negative mm-hmm. story generally. Um, oh, I said it was a snare. Yeah, a snare. And that word is actually in this poem right near the end there, right? Um, the snare of, mm-hmm. of, the, of the undergrowth. But actually, um, what's so horrible and wonderful about that episode is that everybody gets snared except for Captain Kirk. And when he, when he figures out a way to unsnare himself um, and unsnare everyone else... It's kind of a horror that he's done so. He's he does it through anger. He brings them out of their wonderful world that they want to be in. And and when Spock, who's knowing love for the first time in his life, um comes out of it, he remembers his duty and he remembers his logic, aka his religion, you know, and his people. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a tragedy. And it, it it's a bittersweet story. Very, very bitter. It is. And so is this. Indeed. And so is this. Because when it ends, there's little comfort in the wise. The poet doesn't say it, but the reality is there is little comfort in anything but today. That's why it's a carpe diem poem, even though it doesn't hold out the specter of death. It holds out the specter of the ending. You just, you, there is no, there is no love but now. And uh, if the wise say otherwise, that's not comforting at all. Um, so looking at things clear-sightedly, 
saying not the corruption, but the ideal. It may be philosophically interesting, but it is not, it's not a place to, to really feel human. And Brooke does. That's why I like so much that letter you just read to us. Mm-hmm. He is going and wants his love to be given back to Mamua. Can't be done. And yet, even, even at the end, when he remembers what inspired him, he found there was always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.com.